it's so subtle that we can't really point to it and call it out. So I, I think that's what we experienced growing up here. Um, had like we had to work to kind of erase or hide our identity in order to fit in. Welcome to the Hyphenated Nation, a podcast for the modern day Canadian. My name is Hannah, and together with my guests, we explore what it's like navigating life as young adults through chatting about health and wellness, personal development, and relationships. And joining me today is a special guest. She's a Master of Social Work student at University of Toronto. She's passionate about human service management and leadership and social justice. Let us welcome Tenzin. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I have so many questions to ask you, so let's just get started. Tenzin, I want to begin the conversation by asking you what your hyphenation is or are, and what is something you would like people to know about you and your heritage? So I identify as a Tibetan Canadian, and I'll share a bit about my family so that listeners can get a better understanding of what it's like to be a Tibetan. So starting with a little history. Yeah. (laughs) So up until 1949, Tibet was an independent nation and was recognized as one internationally. And China began its invasion of Tibet in the 50s. And the annexation of Tibet was officially declared on 1959. So I don't know if the term annexation is still used today. um, But basically, Tibet came under control of China during that time. And so my mom's family, they actually fled south to the neighboring country of India. And similarly, from my dad's side, they also um, escaped with his family to Nepal, I want to say. So both my parents and my grandparents are all Tibetan refugees. um, And I was born in exile in Nepal. So um, yeah, that's a little history about the plight of Tibetan people and how I came to be. That's so interesting. Um, I don't know many Tibetan people myself, and Mm -hmm. people assume that Tibetans are Chinese people, but I think that is a false assumption. The history and culture are both very different. And so Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you're able to come on here and clarify that. Yeah. And surprisingly, not a lot of people know what Tibet is even when I meet people. So yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to that. Yeah, we recently chatted about your experience growing up as an immigrant and the concept of home and belonging. We both felt that it was hard to identify one place as home. Can you share your journey in reconnecting with your roots and discovering who you are? My brothers and I were quite young when we joined our dad in Canada. I think I was about eight or nine. Um, And up until then, we were immersed in a predominantly Tibetan environment. So we grew up speaking Tibetan. We were raised with cultural values and beliefs that were unique to Tibetans. So I think this upbringing definitely helped us stay connected to our Tibetan identity growing up. But as kids in Toronto, I think we quickly learned to adapt to our new community. I also went to high school and a university where there weren't very many Tibetans. So I grew pretty accustomed to Canadian culture and um, way of being. And I think during these days or during these years, I really tried to fit in with the dominant culture and subconsciously suppressed my Tibetan identity or actually my immigrant identity. I think the word immigrant itself was um, something that I refused to associate with, Mm -hmm. um, whether that was intentional or not. And I think it was a culmination of internalized racism or at least discrimination that I absorbed from my community or my environment. 
one example that I can give is uh, my first real job here as a teenager was in retail and I worked for a company that was notoriously white. So it upheld a lot of um, insidious and superficial values now that I think about it. So yeah, going through this experience and also as a result of like external validation that I was getting from people, um, I tried to stay as close to whiteness as possible, I think. And in uni, I would get people that came up to me and they'd say, oh, you're Tibetan? Like I, your English is so good. Or you don't even have an accent when you're speaking English. So all these things, um, it landed funny on me, but I never really like unpacked the the ambivalence I was feeling at the time yeah but now that I look back they're definitely like derogatory experiences and perhaps even like microaggressions against immigrants and newcomers I I think I relate to your experience so much of growing so I grew up in China for the first um, decade of my life and immigrated Mm -hmm. to Canada and that experience was so surreal to me thinking back because I grew up in predominantly Chinese culture it was not a country where we had a lot of immigrants so growing up I didn't see people of other cultures and of other colors or identities everyone was Chinese and then coming to Canada um, I settled in a white uh, dominantly white community and like yourself I tried subconsciously tried or consciously I'm not really sure what I tried Mm -hmm. to do but um, I really wanted to fit in so yeah growing up I had a really difficult time telling people that I was an immigrant, telling people that I'm Chinese. And when I apply for jobs, I would not tell them that I would, when I make friends, I would not tell them that um, about my heritage or who I am and where I came from. And I almost felt like the same thing when I do disclose that I'm Chinese and I speak a different language, people say, oh, you don't have an accent. Your English is so great. That made me feel so disempowered because I felt like I had to give up my culture in order to perfect English, in order to perfect this uh, lifestyle. Up until university, I didn't realize how detrimental that is to my personal development and growth. And through university, I really started to connect. I try to find my roots again and who I am. I'm still in that process of trying to tell people who I am because I think it's important for people to know and it's important that they feel comfortable to ask me questions about where I come from and what matters to me. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot too. And I think the the scary part is that we don't realize it, but the the discrimination is so it's so subtle that we can't really point to it and call it out. So I, I think that's what we experienced growing up here. Um, had like we had to work to kind of erase or hide our identity in order to fit in to the dominant culture. For sure. I think a really prevalent example of what I went through of microaggression is people, they couldn't pronounce my Chinese name. And so mm-hmm. I had to adapt an English name. <laughs> this uh-huh. is where Anna came in um, t- so that people could pronounce my name properly. And as a child, you know, it was not a good experience going to school and people couldn't say my name properly and they make fun of me for it that in itself it's like oh like people could say yeah they're just teasing you they really like you they want to get to know you but you don't get to know someone through making fun of them and mm-hmm. I really uh that was kind of something I experienced in terms of deliberate racism but also microaggression in terms of because it's settled because it's usually a one-on-one interaction um mm-hmm. there are really no one around there's no one around to really help me out and I didn't know how to navigate that as a child.
Yeah, totally. That's so relatable, actually. I think names are such an important part of our identity and getting that right, it, although it's a small thing, it makes such a difference in how you connect with other people. Um, funny story with my name too. So I went with Namdal. So that's the English way of saying my first name. Mm-hmm. And I was okay with it um, up until up until we, I started the, the graduate program actually. And so just before then I decided um, that I wanted to be called Tenzin instead, just because I really did not like the way my Tibetan name Namdu sounded coming out of like um, English speaking people's mouths. Mm. So yeah, I made that um, conscious choice to have people call me Tenzin instead. Um, I think it was just like years and years of trying to suppress that feeling. Mm. And like you said, years of microaggressions when I was meeting people and them just not getting my name right even the English um, pronunciation of my name and giving me a hard time with that I think it just kind of built up and I made that choice to be like no I don't want to be called that anymore I just it doesn't um, suit me and it doesn't sound like my Tibetan name and so like I can't really connect with that name or connect with people with that name anymore. Yeah. How do you feel when people call you Tenzin? Do you feel like they are, first of all, do people close to you, like, for example, your family members and close friends call you by, I'm going to attempt it, Namdal? Nam- yeah, they call me, they call me Namdu. So that's Namdu. how you say it in Tibetan. But when you write it out in English, yeah, there is that M and that um, strong L sound that we don't really pronounce in Tibetan. Um, so yeah, my friends and family who are Tibetan would call me that. Um, but it's difficult for for you know English speaking or non-Tibetan speaking people to to say that in English or in Tibetan Mm -hmm. so yeah I I definitely like being called Tenzin better because I feel like that's um um it's it's closer to to the name in Tibetan Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah so if someone were to pronounce your name first name correctly or your last name Tenzin correctly which would you prefer uh, I would prefer Namdu, but hmm. ju- just like the sound, I feel like people are just not capable of saying or making those sounds. Um, but yeah, Tenzin is Tenzin is good for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna try to attempt saying your first name, and yeah. I want you to feel comfortable correcting me if that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Perfect. Um, so Namdu. I'm curious about your interest in immigration policies because you talk a lot about um, the the troubles that immigrants have when they come to Canada mm-hmm. and what kind of you learn through your own research and collaboration with other professionals and other people. Yeah, so I think I got into um, research looking at immigration policy last year in 2020. So I began working on a project that looked at different communities in Uh, Toronto or the GTA, looking at um, learning about how migrants and people of color worked to advance community development and empowerment, and essentially making a case for alternative forms of knowledge. And so this experience led to my current research right now with Dr. Sakamoto, where we are critically analyzing Canada's immigration policies and practices that um, seemingly are harmless, but in fact, work to prevent immigrants from entering and thriving in the labor market. So 
these are ideas that I never challenged before until I looked into the literature on this. Um, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. Like it, it seems like harmless things um, and we don't really um, challenge it because it's been, it's been there for so long. It's been entrenched in how we worked. And I think a lot of these norms we have normalized in society and as immigrants, we have also kind of internalized and um, it's often to our own detriment. I can give one example of this and it's related to the fact that as immigrant, as a country, we're um, accepting immigrants who are highly educated and highly skilled, but once they make their way to Canada, there are so many barriers um, to integration, like not recognizing their education, not recognizing their years of experience that they come with. So it's really disappointing. Um, I think that the term that is often used is brain drain or brain waste and the idea of, you know, a PhD taxi driver. Um, as you're talking about this, I'm just keeping thinking about my own experience um, in terms of my parents coming over to Canada. And from what I know, people are ranked based on their education, their age, um, their health status. So pretty much everything that we consider as human rights and people in, in Canada should not be discriminated against, we're putting that standard to measure immigrants coming into Canada and whether whether or not they fit within what we want them to be. And that in itself is a huge problem. I don't think a lot of people understand how the immigration process itself is so discriminatory towards many, many people. And I just, I don't even know where to begin in talking about this, but you do bring a, a really good point is we bring people over into Canada and we don't celebrate them. We don't recognize them in terms of their education, their experience, their expertise, their culture. Um, this is really evident in the workplace. When people are looking for jobs, I could share my own experience with my mom. So she had a really strong uh, banking background in China. She came here and she started working at a sushi restaurant. For the longest time as a kid, I didn't understand why she chose to do that. But now as an adult, I understand it's that if she were to go back to school, she would not be able to afford living and taking care of me. So therefore she had to find ways to make a living and then decide whether or not she could even go back to school or get another degree. So I definitely agree with you. There are a lot of, unfortunately, PhD taxi drivers. And I think the issue is with the labor market and how we support people in all sorts of jobs to make them equally appealing. We shouldn't we shouldn't combat that issue with welcoming immigrants to then fill those jobs that are unattractive to, let's say, Canadians that did not immigrate here. Yeah, and that's a powerful story with your mom. Just want to note that that it's it's not a unique um, experience. Like it's not an exception, but like a product of how we function as a country and how things are being done. And yeah, like you said about the different criteria that we measure essentially when looking at um, applicants from different countries. We are 
basically, um, I think it's called the point system. I don't know if that's changed, but it was called the point system. And we're basically like giving people marks for, you know, being young or like being super educated or very skilled in their professions. And it does leave out a lot of people. It discriminates against a lot of different communities. And um, one that is often not talked about is people who are differently abled. So those people are like further pushed to the margins because they are, um, they're disadvantaged in that way. And um, the way we give points is so standard, narrow and like rigid that it um, leaves out so many people who are in the margins. I completely agree. I think people conceal um, their identity and who they are and their needs in order to make it here. And once they make it here, there are not enough resources to support them because they continue to conceal that um, Mm -hmm. because they feel that they have to in order to get permanent residency and get their citizenship. And because of that, I think this is where health and mental health comes in. People Mm -hmm. don't take care of themselves. Status of their health continues to decline as they're facing many, many challenges when it comes to the labor market, um, settling in the community and finding um, people that they connect with, all of which is very important in our social determinants of health. Totally. That actually, um, that actually speaks to a phenomena that research and literature in this topic talks about, and it's called the healthy immigrant effect. Do you want to learn more about the topics discussed today and connect with others? Follow me on Instagram at the hyphenated nation, hyphenated spelled H-Y-P-H-E-N-A-T-E-D. Now back to the episode. And that um, basically refers to the fact that immigrants who are coming to Canada, they often come in and they score much higher in terms of health and mental health measures. And one year past their immigration um, and then further along, like three years later and five years later, their health actually drops or deteriorates to a rate that's lower than the Canadian born um, population. So it's really interesting. And I think there's more research being done on this. But exactly like you said, the the health of immigrants gets um, poorer and poorer the longer they stay in Canada, which is so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's so many factors that contributes to that. But I I do want to go into what you alluded to earlier is that, you know, many immigrants lack the so-called Canadian experience, and it's been a barrier for many to find jobs that match their credentials. What are your thoughts on this terminology of Canadian experience? And is this type of terminology problematic? Similar to what I said earlier, I think it's something that I had just accepted before my research in this area. So I worked at a community-based agency that served newcomers. And in that role, like I think I was also perpetuating these like harmful notions, harmful ideas of what it means to be successful in Canada. Um, so going into the research on Canadian experience, the my PI, um, Dr. Sakamoto, has actually done extensive research on this topic and problematizing the use of Canadian experience as a requirement for jobs, because it's essentially undermining the education and work experience that immigrants have gained and have uh, worked hard to achieve. Um, so Dr. Sakamoto actually argues that 
Canadian experience is in fact a euphemism for perhaps discriminatory sentiments, implying that immigrants are somehow less than Canadian-born citizens in their qualification and education just because these are skills or education that they gained not in Canada, but in their um, countries of origin. So um, yeah, it's definitely problematic, but at least in Ontario, the Ontario Human Rights Commission declared Canadian experience requirement as discriminatory. And that was as a result of research being done by people like Dr. Sakamoto. So it's inspiring to know that research, um, if we were to you know, focus and prioritize research looking at minority communities, that it can make a difference. It can impact policy and restore some sort of balance in society. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting to hear um, that, I guess, systematic racism is being recognized and it is being um, at least acknowledged. You know, there are so many things that we need to do to further advocate for immigrant rights and equal um, opportunity and provide them with resources that they could continue to thrive in Canada. When we are looking at the job market, there's often a divide of, you know, the applicant has to have a certain set of hard skills versus soft skills. So soft skills include things like communication skills, problem solving skills, teamwork, and even small talk can be compared as, um, could be categorized as soft skills. Are immigrants further, you think, discriminated against through this assumption that soft skills are integral to the work and sometimes more important than the hard skills, such as, you know, knowing how to do certain programming? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think it's a an area of research that's um, beginning to gain more traction. I'm actually working on a research project that looks at exactly this, um, soft skills and conceptualizing soft skills and problematizing this notion because it essentially disadvantages individuals and groups who fall outside of the dominant culture, like we talked about with Canadian experience. Um, I think it's um, another way of um, discriminating against people who um, who fall outside basically of the the definition of what it looks like to be successful um, and that often includes people who have immigrated here newcomers BIPOC communities and folks with different abilities because when we look at soft skills there's there's no one definitive um, answer to what that is and how to measure it, which is why it's so problematic, because what what is the baseline for a comparison when it comes to soft skills like communication? How do you measure that? And how do you measure other soft skills um, that employers are constantly looking for, like leadership skills? These, I think the measure of these skills are inherently biased. So employers are looking for people who talk a certain way, um, or have a certain set of experiences. And this criteria often favors, you know, white, um, upper to middle, middle class folks, people who grew up locally, et cetera. So yeah, we draw parallels between the use of soft skills as a requirement for jobs and also the use of Canadian experience because they both um, ultimately discriminate against minorities. I, I completely agree. I think you said it so well. I think the premise around soft skills, like you mentioned, it's really hard to measure because they're based on 
the cultural norms here. So, you know, for example, small talk in the office. We don't consider that maybe in some cultures, small talk in the office is considered unprofessional. Mm-hmm. And we favor the fact that, like you said, Canadian norms are favored and then they're kind of celebrated. Through that, we see things like soft skills, the requirement of really good interpersonal con- uh, communication, problem solving as a team. Anyway, so (laughs) I think you said it so well, and I'm so glad you're doing research in this area. Um, It really gets me fired up to know that there are people in our generation that is contributing to research and driving forward innovation and change in this area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just reminded me of something, actually. Um, I was talking to our research team about this, and apparently there are like classes or programs designed for newcomers that teach them Canadian culture like how to how to have small talk in the workplace what what topics should you bring up in the workplace and what you shouldn't like it's just it's really funny that these programs exist Um, I think I never challenged it before like I said but like now that I think about it more critically it's like really cringy and there's also programs like accent reduction classes that are designed to like get rid of people's accents so yeah it's all it's all really interesting That is so interesting and so problematic because in high school or university, college, whatever, we don't learn what small talk should be. We don't learn, oh, you shouldn't bring your um, relationship problems to work. We don't learn that. We learn that through experience. And why are we being so hard on people who are new to this environment and culture and expect them to get it right away? I Mm -hmm. think that is not fair especially because people that live in Canada you know grow up in Canada don't go through the same training they Mm -hmm. it's I guess it's supposed to quote come natural yeah right and that's yeah that's very problematic um what would you say is one piece of advice for leaders for managers that are looking to hire new people um for their workplace and how can they make the organization and workplace more inclusive for immigrants? I think this is a big question that a lot of workplaces and bigger companies are also grappling with, um, especially during this political climate. Affirmative action has definitely been a viable solution. So actively working to foster a diverse workplace, and I don't have a definitive answer for this, but we can start to reimagine a more inclusive environment by practicing like self-reflection or self-reflexivity, especially if you're in a leadership position, um, just taking a moment to really challenge your own implicit bias and thought patterns and asking yourself why you think a certain way when you're looking at hiring, like can um, just because a person has a different accent or a different set of cultural values. Is that an accurate measure of their competence in the workplace? Is it relevant to their role that they're applying for and so on? So I think it um, definitely starts from yourself, although there's um, a need for institutional and more macro level changes. I think small changes within yourself makes a difference too. I love that. Yeah, I love that because it doesn't require much. It just requires Mm -hmm. the person to be honest and present with themselves Mm -hmm. and ask themselves what what can I do as a leader to you know like assist 
people in my organization and start that by evaluating who I am as a leader. I know managers and leaders are very busy, but I think it's important to take the time to reflect no matter Mm -hmm. what your position actually is within an organization. Once we're able to identify why we think the way we do, we're then able to call out on behaviors that are inappropriate, Mm -hmm. both, you know, within ourselves, what we're doing, but also for other people. If other people are behaving in a way that is not congruent with this whole inclusive movement, then as leaders, we have the responsibility to call that out and be very open about it. I think people, if they feel comfortable, can and need to start calling out really racist behaviors within workplaces. That totally resonates. And I just, as you were speaking, I just thought about something that Mike said actually last year when I was talking to him about organizational change. And he essentially said, although it would be amazing to have, you know, like a complete reform in how we do things, that's probably not likely to happen, especially in the political system that we exist in. So he says change, like large scale change happen at the individual level and at the community level. So I think starting there is a really good place. And for our listeners who don't know who Mike is, he's our professor at U of T. His name is Michael Shire. Please feel free to look into his research. I think he is a very innovative thinker and he has really actually pushed me to think outside the box and challenge the norms that I've been faced with, the norms that I carry. All of it kind of contributes to my own vision as a leader. I think this platform, something I really want to do with it is to include voices that are different and that is a good representation of our community. My whole philosophy is inclusion really begins with exposure and exposure begins with platforms like this, where people feel comfortable sharing their experiences. Many other people can hear it no matter what, where they are and what they do and who they are. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks, Hannah, again, for creating the space for us. And I do have a few fun questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, These are what I call lightning round questions. You basically just share what comes to your mind first. And yeah, let's get started. The first question is, what is the best piece of advice you have been given in relations to personal development? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, so this is actually in my bio, in my Instagram bio. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember who sent it to me or who like shared that thought with me. Um, but it's essentially, it was a Tibetan proverb and it said, um, sickness comes from not knowing who you are or like not, um, yeah, basically not being in touch with your identity and your roots. So I think that's so powerful. And it's something that I came to um, appreciate more as I got older. But I think um, if there are younger listeners, I think just being being proud of your identity and your heritage and tapping into the wisdom that exists there is such a good way to start your professional and personal development. That is beautiful. Um, what is one thing that would make Canada a more inclusive place? Whoa, these are big questions. <laughs> um, it could be something like um very small things where big system changes just whatever comes to your mind (laughs) appreciating diversity because um this is just getting deeper and deeper (laughs) I know it's supposed to be lighthearted, but um I'm just thinking about Canada's um attitude towards newcomers and basically seeing them as how 
as um, contribution or contributing to the economy of Canada as opposed to like their um, well-being. So I think maybe shifting the focus away from how immigrants can contribute to Canadian economy, but thinking more about how can we all have a more holistic um, look on life and um, how can we all um, work towards a healthier community and a healthier country? you make the questions deeper than they are <laughs> um, because you really are very like a deep thinker and intuitive. So I love your perspective. Okay. Last question. What is one thing that has helped you during the COVID-19 pandemic? I think being with family and um, staying connected to my friends before the pandemic, I was like, I would be home every single day, but um, not really, because I'd be at work or at school and not home most of the day. Um, so, yeah, it was actually a, a blessing in disguise in some ways, just because I got to spend a lot more time with my grandmother, who's here like every single day, spend more time with my mom, who usually works, but is now working from home. So, yeah, we all get to spend more time together. Yeah. Um, I just want to thank you again, Tenzin, for joining me on this journey. Um, if you want, you could share your handles on social media for either organizations you're involved in or your personal handle so that our listeners can reach out. The IG handle for a mentorship program that I'm helping organize and facilitate, and it's Nyamdo Mentorship. So it's N-Y-A-M-D-O Mentorship. So if you could follow that account, um, follow up on events and feel free to join the events if that um, is of interest to you. Wonderful. Is the mentorship program for a certain age group? It's open to it's open to anyone really in the GTA, but a lot of our mentees are actually high school students or they're in their undergraduate studies. In today's episode, Tenzin and I explored our personal experiences with microaggression and the journey we took to embrace our identities. We learned about some of the current barriers in the job market for immigrants and what we can all do as future leaders to promote a more inclusive workplace. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and a rating. Your support is much appreciated. See you next time.